All right, well, good morning. Welcome, everyone. Um, so our scripture reading for this morning is um, the passage that Pastor Tyler will be preaching this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 to 6 is his um, passage, but we're going to read the context as well. So um, if you're using the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 9, uh, 965. We're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, through 4, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. Again, it's on page 965 if you're using the Pew Bible. So uh, please stand with me in honor of God's word and follow along as I read. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold." Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. Morning, Bethel. So I want to start our time together this morning with a question. What would you say if I were to ask you, 
What's the number one thing that prevents you from sharing your faith or from having a hard conversation with a fellow believer? For many of us, I'd guess that it's fear. We're afraid of how folks will respond to the gospel. We fear rejection and all the ways it can affect our ongoing relationships. We fear the potential embarrassment, awkwardness, loss, fallout, and suffering that can come from spiritual conversations. So how do we combat that? I recently watched a TED Talk by a guy named Jia Zhang. If you're not familiar with TED Talks, they're short presentations on a wide variety of subjects, and they're meant to be inspirational and educational. They're, they're really good. In this talk, Jia explains how he overcame fear of rejection. He stumbled across a website that's called rejectiontherapy.com where this method was prescribed. Do something for 30 consecutive days that opens you up to rejection, and by the end of the process, after you've experienced all of that rejection, you'll eventually be desensitized to it. That sounds horrifying to me, but John not only did it, he did it for 100 days in a row instead of 30. And he did some things like, I'll just list a few. He asked to borrow 100 bucks from a stranger. Uh, he was in a fast food restaurant, and instead of requesting a drink refill, requested a burger refill. Uh, he was a live mannequin at Abercrombie. Uh, he asked strangers for compliments. Uh, he asked the manager at Starbucks if he could serve as a greeter. Starbucks doesn't have greeters. Uh, he trimmed his hair at PetSmart. Um, and he attended a random Super Bowl party. There's all kinds of stuff like this. So if nothing else, that experiment's hilarious. Uh, but for Jot, it seems to have worked. He wrote a book about his experience, and he established a business based on it, based on overcoming fear of rejection. So there is some truth behind what he did. Like for many, if not most of us, we will become less afraid of rejection and more comfortable in our own skin the more we experience it. But that said, is that the best way to deal with our fear? Or a better question, is that how Scripture would have us fight our fear, fight our fear of sharing the gospel with others, or fight our fear of having a tough conversation with a fellow believer that could potentially go poorly? I think in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6, which is our text for this morning, Paul shows us a better path. So Paul knew what it's like to be rejected for being a minister of the gospel. Just think about his experience with the church in Corinth. He planted that church. He invested in that church. He sacrificed for them. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel to them. You'd think that after all of that, there would be a rosy, healthy, flourishing relationship between the Corinthian church and her apostle. But that is not what happened. False teachers came into town and challenged Paul's apostolic authority, evidently citing things like his poor speaking ability, his suffering, his preaching of the gospel for free as evidence that he's not the real deal. He's not to be followed. And tragically, the church bought that lie. So when Paul visited Corinth on his way to Macedonia, things went so poorly 
that he canceled his travel plans, went to Ephesus, and wrote, a, wrote the church a letter urging them to repent. Thankfully, most of them did, but by the time of 2 Corinthians, by the time of this writing, some still had not. So what does Paul do with all of that? How does he process and react to that kind of rejection? That's what I think is in view in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. In this passage, he does at least three things. One, he explains that because God mercifully called him to new covenant ministry, he doesn't shrink back from declaring the truth. Two, he pulls back the curtain and explains why people reject the gospel of Christ crucified and risen. And he defines what he proclaims. Three, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he shines a spotlight on the miraculous work that God performed, not just in his heart, but in the hearts of all those who follow Jesus. So let's look at each of those in turn. So we'll start with verses 1 and 2, and this is our first point, confident proclamation. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So the first thing that we need to do here is understand what Paul means by this ministry. What's he referring to, and what does he mean when he says he has it by the mercy of God? The word, therefore, the beginning of verse 1, gives us a clue. We need to look at what Paul has said up to this point. So back in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, he said, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, and catch this, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So God made Paul a minister of a new covenant. That's what he's referring to when he says this ministry in chapter 4, verse 1. And in chapter 3, he contrasts that new covenant with the old. The old covenant, he says, was the ministry of death, while the new covenant is the ministry of the Spirit. The old covenant was the ministry of condemnation, but the new covenant is the ministry of righteousness. So what does all of that mean? If you weren't here two weeks ago, and even if you were, I'd encourage you to listen to Pastor Chris's sermon that covers chapter 3, 7 to 18. But for now, I think we can summarize it like this. The old covenant refers to the law that God gave the Israelites through Moses as a mediator in the Old Testament. That law was good. How could it have been anything different? God gave it. And it revealed God's character and God's will. But there was a problem. The problem wasn't with the law. The problem was with the people. They were hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And so, although they had God's law, they didn't have the power to obey God's law. All it did was lead to more sin. That's why Paul can refer to the Old Covenant as a ministry of condemnation, as a ministry of death. But enter the New Covenant. This is the wonderful news in this section. Because of what Jesus accomplished through his sinless life, 
through his sacrificial death on the cross and through his triumphant resurrection, instead of writing the law on tablets of stone, God, through the Spirit, writes it on human hearts. God brings about the internal transformation the old covenant, which was external, never could accomplish. Under the new covenant, when sinners turn to the Lord and trust Jesus to save them, God changes them from the inside out and makes them more and more like Jesus as time goes on. That's really good news, and Paul knows that because he's experienced this. In chapter 9 of the book of Acts, Luke tells us about it. Paul's a persecutor of the church, full of threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But while Paul was on his way to Damascus to search for Christians, the risen Christ found Paul. God saved him there. God showed him grace. God changed him. Paul was never the same after he met Jesus. Once a persecutor of God's people, he was now a zealous evangelist for Christ and called to proclaim the gospel before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so, he says in 2 Corinthians 4.1, having this ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Lose heart there meaning something like to shrink back or to be cowardly. It's like the opposite of what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Paul doesn't lose heart. He doesn't shrink back from declaring the truth. Unlike those opponents, those false teachers, those charlatans who came into Corinth and called Paul's ministry into question, he says in verse 2 of chapter 4, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, which that's a word that Paul uses later in 2 Corinthians in reference to how Satan deceived Eve in the garden. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. One commentator sums this up well. He says, Paul insists that unlike such con men, he did not adjust water down, or tamper with the gospel to stroke his listeners' egos or to avoid ruffling their feathers. He is not a flatterer using God's word only to delight the audience and bewitch them with enchanting interpretations that never question their conduct or character. Can you see how that might have been a temptation for Paul? Think about it. Maybe if Paul would have worked on being a better order. Or maybe if he would have charged people money to hear him speak. Or maybe if he would have made an effort to appear more accomplished and well-off, he would have been more effective. He would have gained a wider following. Maybe if he would have preached something less confrontational than Christ crucified, or maybe if he would have relaxed a bit on God's moral demands, he wouldn't have been rejected and criticized so much. That wasn't an option for Paul. By God's mercy, he is a minister of the new covenant, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by which the Spirit transforms people and makes them new. And so, it's like Peter and John in Acts 4. He must, he can't help but proclaim what he has seen and heard. 
So he says at the end of verse 2, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul is not hiding anything. He's not sneakily trying to get people to follow him and subscribe to his personal brand. He's plainly setting forth the truth of God's word and commending himself to the conscience of his listeners, that faculty that enables us, that helps us determine right and wrong. And he's doing so honestly and confidently in the sight of the Lord. Like he says in chapter 2, verse 17, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Oh, how we and I need to learn from Paul here. Paul's ministry is unique in that he's an apostle. He saw the risen Christ and was commissioned by the Lord to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We don't share that with him. But like Paul, we, if you're a Christian, have received the mercy of God at salvation and have been mercifully called to minister the gospel to others. Do you see how that, fear, or how that frees us from fear of rejection? How that enables us to boldly share the truth of God's word? I think it does so in at least two ways. One, since we've received God's mercy, we don't need to fear what other people think of us or how others respond to us. Now, that doesn't give us license to be steamrollers in our, in our personal relationships. We want to be intentional to minister the gospel to people as winsomely, as compellingly, as lovingly as we can. But what it does mean is that we don't need to go through a 30-day process of intentionally exposing ourselves to rejection again and again and again in order to change. God has already changed us in Christ. He has already shown us mercy. He has already declared us righteous in Christ and made us his children. And because that's true, we don't have to be a slave to other people's opinions because we already have the approval of the God of the universe. That means that I can boldly share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus without fear of what they'll think of me. That means that I can lovingly exhort a fellow believer without worrying how they'll respond to me. I can expose myself to personal risk because I'm safe and secure in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And because the truth of God's word is worth sharing no matter what it costs us. And two, the gospel that we've received, the gospel that we are declaring is the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ, which has power to save, power to transform. Because that's true, we can share it with confidence and boldness. We are proclaiming a message that is able to give life, to, give, to bring change, to transform. That doesn't come from us. That comes from God, who by His Spirit changes people and transforms them from the inside out. As George Whitfield once said, other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. 
We dare not alter the truth of God's word in order to avoid rejection or to gain a following or to elicit a more favorable response. No one needs cheap grace that doesn't have power to save. We need to hear the life-giving good news of the gospel of Jesus, and we need to hear all its implications, all its moral demands for us. But the tragic reality is that even when some people hear the gospel, they won't see it as good news. Paul addresses that, what's behind rejection of the gospel, in verses 3 to 4, and that's our second point. Blind unbelief. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul boldly proclaims the truth. He doesn't compromise in order to gain a following or to avoid rejection. And make no mistake, he did experience rejection and loss for his bold gospel proclamation and his refusal to adopt those serpentine tactics that others used to win approval. Remember, the church in Corinth rejected Paul's apostolic authority. And while most of them repented, some of them did not. Some continued to rebel. So what does Paul make of this? How does he respond? Here in verse 3, he explains that even if his gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In chapter 3, verse 13, Paul mentions this idea of a veil blinding those who reject the gospel. There, he recalls Exodus 34, where Moses met with God and his face shone as a result of being in God's glorious presence. Now, when the people of Israel saw that, when they saw Moses' face, they became afraid because Moses' face reflected God's glory, and God's glory signified God's presence, and they feared God's presence because of their sin and rebellion. And so what did Moses do? He covered his face with a veil, putting a barrier between Israel and the glorious presence of the Lord. Paul picks that up in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14. He says, when the Israelites, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So why do folks, Jew, Gentile, and that unrepentant minority in Corinth reject Paul's gospel? Why do they reject the gospel of Christ crucified and risen? They may reference Paul's weak speaking ability, they may reference his suffering or his preaching free of charge, but ultimately, are those the reasons? No. They reject Paul's gospel because it's veiled to them, because they're blind. One commentator puts it like this, people are not blinded because they choose to renounce the gospel. Rather, they choose to renounce the gospel because they are blind. They can't see that there's glory in suffering. They can't see that there's power in weakness. They can't see that life is found in dying to oneself. They can't see glory and power in a crucified and risen Messiah. 
No, in their case, and this is verse 4, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God's glorious presence was veiled to the Israelites because of their sin, but Jesus, the image of God, God made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the light of the world, came down to do what the law, what the old covenant never could. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He never sinned. And for us and our salvation, he was crucified on a Roman cross. And as he hung there, the spotless lamb of God, he took on our sin and bore the wrath of God for our rebellion. And he died. To those who were there, hope seemed lost. But three days later, just like he said he would, Jesus rose from the grave He triumphed over Satan, sin, and death. And because of what he accomplished, the promise for everyone, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.14, is that if you turn from your sins and trust Jesus to save you, that veil that lies over your heart will be removed. You'll be saved, made righteous, forgiven, brought into a right relationship with God. Satan does not want sinners to hear that. He wants to keep them in darkness, blind to that good news. And so he does everything in his power to make it so. It's like he has a distortion pedal that he uses on fallen humanity. A distortion pedal is a tool that alters a guitar's sound to make it rougher, grittier, Now, musicians use that to enhance their music, to enhance their sound, but that's not how Satan works. Ever intent to rob God of glory and drag people down to destruction along with him, he distorts the beautiful melody of the gospel to keep sinners from hearing and responding to it. And apart from God's glorious, sovereign intervention, what should come across as majestic and beautiful. Instead, sounds like nails on a chalkboard. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 18, 118, for the cross is, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And similarly, in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16, for we are the aroma of of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. What is sweet to some is sour to others. What is freedom to some is slavery to others. What is life and salvation to some is death to others. What's the difference between those two groups? Is it that those who follow Jesus are better or smarter or wiser than others? No. We are all born in sin and guilt. We are all dead in our sin. 
And unless God sovereignly intervenes and makes us live, we can't, we won't hear the gospel as good news. As John Calvin says, God's grace is tasteless to men until the Holy Spirit brings its savor. So if you are here this morning and you aren't a Christian, maybe you're here with a friend or maybe you're here just exploring Christianity. It's Christmas time. You want to see what it's all about. I don't know how all of this sounds to you. Maybe it sounds offensive. I actually expect that to be the case. The gospel is the best news you'll ever hear in your life, but you don't get the sweetness of it without tasting the sour part first. And that's what's here in this text. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. We are blind to the truth. We have rebelled against the holy God of the universe, and we have stored up nothing for ourselves except the wrath of God, except condemnation. We're blind. The ancient snake who deceived Eve in the garden does everything to keep us that way. But here is a really good news, and I pray that you hear this as a sweet melody today. Jesus came to earth to save sinners. He lived a perfect life where you failed. He died a sacrificial death on the cross and rose in victory three days later. And because of what he did, the promise for you is that if you turn from your sins and trust Christ to save you and be your king, he will. He doesn't ask for your best efforts, only for you to see and feel your need for him. So today, trust and follow Jesus. He's good. He is worth it. He's worth your life. If you have more questions about that, come and see me when the service is over. I would love to share more with you. I'd love to set up a time and get coffee with you and talk later. Just come and see me if you've got questions. For those of us who are following Jesus, how are we supposed to respond to this? I think we can do so in two ways. First, we need to keep believing the gospel. Remember that part of Paul's audience here includes folks who claim to be Christians but have since rejected Paul's apostolic authority and thus the gospel he preached as well. So there's an implicit warning here. Those who reject Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, are proving that they are blind. May that never be the case here. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And let's keep boldly encouraging one another in our faith, even if that's going to mean some awkward, tough conversations along the way. We need each other. Second, in dependence on the Lord, we should be diligent to do everything within our power to see folks come to know Christ. Life and death, heaven and hell are at stake here. And we are up against a powerful enemy that wants to keep people blinded to the truth. So we should pray. We should ask the Lord to give those who don't know Christ eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel as good news. And we should share the gospel regardless of potential fallout because telling somebody they're on a train heading for a cliff is more important than worrying they'll think I'm crazy for believing that's true. And we should have empathy and patience in the process. 
We don't expect a blind person to do everything a person with sight can. And so we shouldn't be surprised when someone doesn't immediately turn and accept the gospel. Until the Lord gives them sight, they won't see Christ as good news. We were at one time blind too. But thank God he didn't give up on us, but rather he intervened and gave us eyes to see. So keep praying for that friend, that classmate, that coworker, that neighbor, that child, that parent, that grandparent, that spouse, that sibling who doesn't know Jesus. Don't give up on them. Keep boldly proclaiming the gospel. Keep praying that God would show them, and this is our third point, omnipotent grace, verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul has established that because he has this new covenant ministry by God's mercy, he doesn't shrink back from proclaiming God's word. Those who reject it, those who are perishing, do so because they're blinded to the truth. Paul, his speaking ability, his suffering, his free proclamation of the gospel are not the problem. Now, in verse 5, Paul emphasizes, or rather he re-emphasizes, that Jesus Christ as Lord is the focus of his proclamation. He's not building a cult following around himself. Rather, he is pointing people to the crucified, risen and exalted Christ. And because his ministry is cruciform, because it is shaped by the cross of Christ who suffered and died for his sake, Paul denies himself and puts himself in the position of a servant in order to proclaim Jesus to the Corinthians. And why does he do all of that? Because he's seen the light. Look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? It's almost the exact same language that Paul used in verse 4, where he describes what Satan tries to prevent sinners from seeing. So, Chad, could you throw that image on the screen? So, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But God, who created the universe, let light shine out of darkness. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Knowledge there being parallel with gospel in verse 4 and the glory of God in verse 6 being parallel with the glory of Christ in verse 4 because Christ is God. So Satan may have power on this earth, but it is limited to what God allows. He may blind unbelievers from the gospel, but God, who at the beginning of creation spoke light into the darkness by the word of his power, can shine the light of the gospel into the darkest of hearts with a word. So it's like that verse 
in the song, This is my father's world. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Don't miss the gravity of what Paul's saying here. This is nothing short of new creation. Remember that Paul experienced this on the road to Damascus when a light shone down and he met the risen Christ. And if you're a Christian here today, you have experienced that too. God has worked a miracle in your heart similar to the one he performed at the beginning of time. There was darkness in you. There was sin, death, and decay, but God stepped into that situation and said, let there be light. He awakened you to your need for Jesus, and he gave you faith to repent and believe the good news. You received omnipotent grace from the Most High. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That should make us want to come out of our seats today. Man, that's good news. That should thrill us. That should enable us to overcome fear when sharing the gospel with others but, and when interacting with people, period. Because if the God of creation has approved of you, if the God of creation has recreated you, what is rejection from other people? And that should motivate us to share Christ crucified and risen with folks who don't know Jesus because God can shine light into anyone's heart. When I was, a seminary, when I was in seminary in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, there was a professor there named Dr. Chuck Lawless. Uh, Dr. Lawless, he works now at Southeastern Seminary. It's in North Carolina. And I didn't have... Dr. Lawless in class, but one of the things that I remember about him is his testimony of his dad's conversion. He prayed for his dad for years to come to know Christ. I think it was decades, actually. And when his dad was converted, and as Dr. Lawless shared this testimony, here's what he said. He said, as I've traveled with the International Mission Board, every place I've gone, I've said, I want people all over the world praying for my parents because I just happen to believe God will do something in response to the prayers of his people. God answered those prayers. At the age of 71, his dad trusted Christ. And Dr. Lawless said that after his dad converted, his dad called him and he said, it's good news for me now. What was sour, what was tasteless, became sweet. And Dr. Lawless said that after his dad converted, um, uh, he spoke with a missionary, a missionary friend of his emailed him. And this is a missionary, I believe, that was in a high security, uh, largely unreached area. And listen to what this missionary said. He said, I sit in tears right now. Glory to God in the highest. To be honest, your dad is the first one on my prayer list that's come to know the Lord. When the time is right, tell your dad he has stirred the heart of a missionary in this place to be as bold as I've ever been in both prayer and in sharing. That's the work that God is about. That's wonderful. And praise God for saving 
Dr. Lawless's dad, but what do you do when there is no fruit? What do you do when folks aren't responding to the gospel? Watch this uh, video here. Listen to how this woman uh, named Eli perseveres in prayer um, for her friend who hasn't yet trusted Christ. There's one woman that I've been sharing the gospel with for a long time, over 25 years. Let's call her Mary. The way I started studying the Bible with Mary is awesome because it was such a God thing. We were just having a conversation over the death of someone and we found something that was a very clear gospel presentation and I read it and we started having a dialogue back and forth and she was asking questions and I found the Lord giving such boldness and courage to me and we had a wonderful conversation and it came to the point where she actually said maybe we could study the Bible together. What has become apparent in studying the gospel is that it's a different gospel and so we're believing differently and she's uncomfortable with that. Her gospel is following the way of Jesus with his values and being willing to suffer to love other people, but it's very man-centered, not believing that Jesus was God's son and that he gave his life to rescue us from sin. She is thinking that Jesus is not the only way that sinners can be redeemed. She doesn't like to think that there's only one way to do anything and she views that as, as being divisive, and anything that divides and keeps her from being able to embrace everybody is viewed as an evil. And what I keep trying to emphasize is God has loved the world, and He has invited all to come and put their hope in Christ, but He's made this one way. I've been tempted to quit my evangelism with her and, and to give up. But every time I think about what the Lord has done in my life, it encourages me to press on in prayer, to persevere. Because I want her to be rescued. I want her to know the love of God in Christ. And I don't want her to stand on her merit when she meets the Lord. Sometimes I have doubted that I'm sharing it in a way that is helpful, but I also have been encouraged and comforted by God's Word that says the natural man doesn't understand the things of God and because they're spiritually discerned. So I understand that even communicating clearly to her apart from God's work in her life won't bear fruit, so I've taken courage that that um, I can keep praying for her and keep persevering. And I keep praying the Lord will give her eyes to see. 
My name is Eli, and I am unashamed of the gospel. Did you notice the, uh, the empty chair was in the video? That's there because this video is part of a series where typically there are two people in front of the camera, one who has shared the gospel and one who has received the gospel. But in Eli's case, her friend hasn't received the good news yet, and so that chair is empty. I think that we can learn from her here whether you're sharing Christ with someone for the first time or for the hundredth time, keep going. Let the love God has shown you encourage you to press on and keep asking God, keep pleading with him to open that person's eyes and shine the light of the gospel in their heart. And all the while, trust the Lord who is good and always, always does what is right and just. So where are you risking rejection for your faithful proclamation of the gospel? Where are you risking rejection for your faithful ministry of the word of God? Who are you ministering to? Who are you praying for? Who are you pleading for to be saved. This week, persevere in prayer, persevere in sharing, persevere in ministering. Bring your community group alongside you as you go about this work. If this is a struggle for you, and I think it can be for all of us at times, ask God to help you and change your heart. He can and he will. Bring others around you to help hold you accountable. Step out in faith and confidently start a spiritual conversation with someone who doesn't know Christ. And commit yourself to fighting for the sanctification of your brothers and sisters in Christ here. As you do this, remember the mercy that God has shown you in Christ. Remember that you get, we have the privilege of participating in this new covenant ministry where the God who created the universe shines light into the darkness. He has done great things for me. He's done great things for you if you're trusting in Jesus. And he can do the same for others. So don't lose heart. Let's close in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. We are grateful for what you have done for us, that you have shown the light of the gospel in our hearts, that you have saved us, that you have made us come alive where we were dead, that you have transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, we are grateful for your mercy. We rejoice because of your grace. Lord, please fill us up with joy this week, today, over what you've done for us in Christ. God, let who we are give us the confidence and the boldness, the eagerness 
to share that good news with others, to minister your word to others. Lord, we need you. We need your strength. We need your empowerment. Lord, please do it. And Lord, please work through us. Please work through this church here. Make us a light in this city. And Lord, let your light dawn on people's hearts here who right now don't know Jesus. Lord, do the same through all of the missionaries that we are supporting. Lord, let the gospel go forth and bear fruit for your great namesake and for the good of ourselves and those who don't know you presently. Lord, we pray all this confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. You're dismissed.